0: Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. So many international medical graduates or IMGs have questions regarding navigating their clinical experiences. Dr. Nina Loom is a family medicine hospitalist and the host of the IMG Roadmap podcast, as well as the course and blog. And she's here to help us gain experience and advice for letters of recommendation to boost IMG success. Nina, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Hey, thanks, Chase. I really appreciate being on here. That was a great intro. I was like, is that me? (laughs)
0: Well, it's great having you on here because we haven't really done anything focusing on IMGs on this series. So I think it'll be a very useful topic and I'm also an IMG. So there are a lot of questions that I had and that my classmates had and I still hear about often. So having someone that specializes in this categorization of students is probably going to be very helpful for the audience. Well, I'm here to help. Bring the questions on. All right. I got to start with an icebreaker question. It's a weird one, but what is the most outrageous thing that you've seen in the academic medicine setting?
1: The most outrageous, I would say the most outrageous thing for me is the ego that you can perceive when working in an academic medical setting. And what I mean by that is there is some level of arrogance that occurs in medicine, which is normal or has been normalized. And that can run from the way that students get pimped, the way that residents get taught, the ways that surgeons were trained. And so it just varies from institution to institution. But there is almost a certain level of bullying or what I call an ego fight that goes on in medicine, which is completely unnecessary and stands in the way of the learner.
0: Completely agree. And that's actually been a topic on many past episodes. A lot of physicians feel like Either they were bullied as a student or they see other preceptors that are a little bit that aggressive type A personality towards their students and trying to get away from that kind of mentality and finding that that's much more beneficial for the learning environment. I agree with you. I mean, some
1: of us that are maybe just five years out of residency like myself may have had a better experience because we got in right at the time where the ACGME was you know managing and changing laws around the duty hour rules but then you know i know that that has changed several times since i started residency approximately 7 years ago there's also the older generation of physicians that feel like that not having limitations on physician or not focusing on physician wellness was actually beneficial for them to be properly trained so there are two sides to the coin but i think the bottom line is There is definitely an area for improvement when it comes to eliminating or reducing the level of what I call the ego fight or bullying in medical education.
0: Yeah, there's always room for improvement and we should always be looking how to improve ourselves anyway. So when a topic is brought up many times by your colleagues or other people in the field, it's probably good that we listen to that and kind of think about how are we utilizing this or abusing this or how we can make changes personally.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you.
0: So a little bit more about yourself. You're a family medicine internist and you have this educational material. And what made you get into the podcast and the course and all this material you have? And what does it cover?
1: So yes, I am a podcaster at the IMG Roadmap podcast. And my goal with it was I just got sick and tired of Watching IMG stumble along the way like I did, because that's all I did was to stumble and scrape for the remains of the table, for lack of better words, trying to figure out what information was pertinent, how to go about application, how to network, how to request strong letters, how to even have great clinical experiences, and how to be competitive with the U.S. graduate. Because that was a struggle for me when I finished residency. I had a lot more time on my hands and I decided what was the one thing that was most painful for me to get to where I'm at right now? Here I am. I have a good job. I get paid well. I enjoy my life. I can travel. I can do all these things, but life wasn't always like that. And so I started to reevaluate and think about what are the things that stood in the way? How could I have been better? I mean, I'm sure that I could be a much better physician in the next few years. And so I started to ask these questions, and by that introspection, I realized that a lot of my problems came down to lack of information, lack of specific knowledge, and lack of mentorship and guidance. And so I decided to create something that I wish I had, because knowing fully well, if I had that information, I would have performed a whole lot differently, and it would have been a whole lot better outcome. So that's what really prompted me into taking some time out of my work schedule, to begin to create this platform. It wasn't really intentional that it would become what it is today. I just wanted a blog. I wanted an outlet. I just wanted to tell people what I've learned, what I've seen, how I was able to triage applicants when I was a chief resident, what my approach was. And knowing all those things, I felt like there was so much information that I could use to train other IMGs so that they could be competitive, stand out and match. And that was really my drive because I got sick and tired of seeing my classmates not matching. I got sick and tired of IMGs, like I said, scraping for the bottom of whatever's left from the table. When we are just as competitive, we are strong candidates. A lot of us do well on our boards. And even if we don't do well on our boards, there's so many other doctors that get the opportunities that we can get who did not equally perform as well because they were able to compensate in other parts of the application process. So with this pain, I could no longer sit down and do nothing. And that was my drive to begin to pursue this on my weeks off. So as a hospitalist, my schedule is typically a block schedule, where it's one week on and one week off. So technically, I have half of the year off. And instead of just sitting around twiddling my thumbs, I felt like I could be reinvesting, giving back to the community that built me, even though we didn't have the resources then to build one another. And that's why I created this platform.
0: I think a lot of us do that. We realize that we didn't have the guidance and resources and mentorship, like you said, that we felt were very necessary for ourselves and our colleagues. And that's definitely why I started this podcast. It's why I cover in the Medical Nemesis podcast, more learning techniques and methodologies that we weren't really taught. And it's great that you have this resource for specifically helping IMGs match when that is a huge issue that you constantly hear about, just the discrepancies, the stereotypes, the negative stigma of coming from a Caribbean or foreign medical school and trying to match in the US.
1: Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. I mean, there's just so much. And you can categorize the problems that IMGs face under so many different categories. It could be social, they could be academic, financial, right? But then when you break that down, the social seems to be the biggest one where there's stigma and stereotype. And so that already is ingrained in the medical system in a way that prevents even the good IMGs to shine or get opportunity thrown at them, or even to get opportunity that they well fully deserve. And then you go to the academic part where IMGs maybe are pushed into community hospitals, not that community hospitals aren't great. Because I practice in one. I train in partly in one as well as an academic center. So I get the best of both worlds. And I can fully say, yeah, academic centers are academic for a reason because they have more resources. And so if we're all being pushed away into training and learning from only community centers that we're not getting the best of both worlds. And then you go into financials. Most people that chose the IMG path maybe did not want to have a high student loan debt, they couldn't afford it or they didn't get in or one reason or the other, they chose something that was financially feasible for them because they could afford the tuition. Whatever those reasons are over the period of time or span of time, cumulatively affect that person to just be able to study because you're just trying to study to pass step one or step two or step three, but then you have three major parts of your life that are standing against you and you have to fight to overcome them. And that's, again, the reason why and just don't match because it either falls under one of those three categories. Maybe they weren't exposed to high quality clinical rotations. And so their performance on the steps weren't as great as their counterparts. Maybe they had limited finances. And so they had gaps in their application and therefore they were considered less competitive because it took them more than four years to graduate medical school. Or maybe they're from a whole different country and they don't even understand the system in America. They don't understand the educational curriculum in America and they need to first learn that before learning how to take the test and then learning how to answer standardized tests in the U.S. educational system in order to show that they are competitive enough to be specialized in whatever specialty that they're choosing. So when you have all these things stacked against an IMG, it's imperative that we have resources like what I've created with the IMG Roadmap course that direct them on every single part of these and how they can overcome them so that they then get to the same level playing field as their American graduate counterparts.
0: And I definitely can feel a connection to some of the things that you've said there. I've definitely experienced them and seen them with other classmates as well. And I know that in some of your resources that I looked at said, you need to be making these plans way ahead of time, maybe several years ahead of time. And I'm wondering what advice you have for students just maybe just entering their clinical rotations, what are some things they should look for and try to accomplish during those years?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, this is the thing. As an international medical graduate myself, just like you said, it's something that we experience firsthand. So we know exactly what it takes to have gone through that. But investing early on is one of the best things anyone can do. And the ways to do that is one, gathering specific knowledge. And what I mean by that is. If you're not informed about something, you can't create a plan around it. If you don't know about a specialty, you can never pursue it. That's just an example, right? So, you know, IMGs, maybe some that are non US IMGs that are not even informed about how specialized internal medicine can get or how specific they can get in a surgical specialty with focusing on retina surgery by being an ophthalmologist and then pursuing their retina fellowship. So, not having that specific knowledge already. Is against you because you don't even know it exists. So one of the things that I wanted to do was to, hey, how do I get specific knowledge out there for students? Now, if you're starting out and you're going to maybe start with your clinical rotations that's designed by your school, it's important to know that you don't have to only do what your school has offered you. You can spend your elective months at institutions that will give you opportunity to rotate with them and provide you an even higher quality learning experience. But you have to seek that out. And so when you start out early, you can learn about what it takes to be competitive so that you can implement those things and start reaching out to programs, reaching out to electives or additional rotations and such, and beginning to position yourself in a place that by the time you get to where you need to utilize that service, you've already been planning for a year or two years before. But not having that knowledge beforehand it doesn't allow you for you time to uh, take the necessary steps when you're already deep in the trenches. Because at that point, you're so preoccupied with studying for the boards, you're so preoccupied with just passing the rotation that you're in that you're no longer seeing long term. It's like you know the law of needs, right? Like if you're so deep into step ones in three months, I have so much to study, I want to do well because that's has historically been how you know programs have sieved through applicants. There's no way you're going to start learning about all the other social aspects of being an IMG that you need to overcome, or the other academic aspects of being an IMG that you need to overcome, or the other potentially financial aspects that you need to overcome. So, not having that information early on really stands in the way.
0: Thinking back to my own personal history with it and coming from a family that didn't have much of an academic background, I believe my father had an associates, and that was a As far as my family went academically, no one knew anything about medicine. No one was there to guide me there. And when I got into medical school, I just assumed, okay, I'm going to learn what I need to learn here. And so anything that wasn't covered in class or was discussed by my immediate friends is not something I really was even aware that I needed to research. So it's not something that I could go out and necessarily find more information about because I didn't know that it was something I should look at, such as these topics you're discussing here finding specific interests and how deep certain pathways go or how divided and subdivision, subspecialized certain professions can go in medicine. So just knowing what is out there is a great start.
1: Right, knowing is the first step to taking action because you can't take action about something that you don't even know. And so knowing is what I'm really about is giving people that information so that they know and then they can take action. And then I can then show you how to take action. But if you don't know, how do you take the first step?
0: Yeah, and I guess this is a great plug for both of us is podcasts are a great free resource to talk about topics that you might not hear about otherwise. They might not be as common from your school, from your academic resources. So using these free resources out there can be a great way to find out more about things you didn't know existed before. Do you have any specific techniques that you recommend students, for instance, asking for a letter of recommendation or trying to really prove or excel in a certain rotation?
1: So this is actually a whole module that I have in my online course, and I'll break it down to you in the time that we have. There is a method to this, okay? And if anybody's ever told any of our listeners that there isn't, they're lying, there is. So first of all, it starts with the clinical experience. It starts with the rotation. What I caution IMGs is a few things. If you know what specialty you're interested in, first of all, you should do more than one or two rotations in it, even up to three rotations in it. Because what you're doing is you are beefing up your CV. You are showing interest in that specialty. And then you're giving yourself the opportunity to have more than one or two letter writers. So your electives could focus on that specialty. Now, what you can do is, before the rotation, you need to be aware of what the flow of the rotation is. Are you going to be rotating with residents, with fellows, with the attending directly? You need to understand the structure around it. So you want to reach out to programs before you even show up in the hospital. Day one should not be the day that you're learning with everybody else, orienting yourself with everybody else. You want to be a step ahead. What that does for you is it helps you understand the structure. It helps you understand what you'll need to do to interact with the person that will be writing your letter. So this is crucial because the person writing your letter should be the most senior person on the team, and that should be your attending. Now, a lot of times you will be interacting with uh, fellows and residents a lot more, but that should not deter you. And this is particularly if you're in a multidisciplinary setting. Now, if you're in a private practice where it's just you and the attending, it's just a matter of likability and how you influence people and how you make friends. So. Now going back to the multidisciplinary setting, you're going to understand the structure of the rotation. You're going to understand who you're working with. And then the second tier to that is you're going to identify who your potential letter writer would be. Now at the beginning of the rotation, you want to ask that person about the resources that you need to purchase in order to excel at that rotation. What I mean by that is what books, what sites, what research platforms that they use, like up-to-date Medscape, what do they recommend that you read from? So this is particularly important if you are interested in pediatrics, for example. So you're going to talk to the pediatrician asking, what's your reference book of choice? What do you recommend that I look for? And you're going to send this out in an email, letter, phone call, whatever, asking these questions before your rotation. So you come prepared. That already tells that attending that you are wanting to learn and you're wanting to stand out. The reason that person became a pediatrician is because they love pediatrics. So when you tell a pediatrician that you want to learn pediatrics, guess what? You're automatically going to become likable toward them. So that's the first step. And then the next thing is when you show up, you are going to be engaged. You're going to be looking for opportunity to be the one to do an admission, the one to do a procedure, the one to assist, the one to watch, the one to do the Scott work, because a lot of students end up doing the Scott work. And that's fine. Everybody's going to do Scott work at some point in their career. May as well be now. So you're going to be the one that puts the first foot forward to say, hey, I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to try to be the one to show up, to volunteer, to be a valuable part of the team, even as a student. Then around the end of the first week, you want to make your intentions known to the most senior person on your team who's going to be writing your letter. You're going to be asking them for what you can do over the next few weeks in order to get a strong letter recommendation for them. So you're not telling them that you're going to be asking them for a letter, but you're saying, Dr. XYZ, This is the end of my first week and I'm just evaluating how my first week went. But what can I do over the next three, four weeks in order to be able to come back to you to request a strong letter of recommendation? Because I'm thinking I will be applying into pediatrics. And then what you're doing there is you're allowing that person to give you feedback in order to know what you should be doing so that when you come back two, three, four months from now to ask for a letter, it doesn't just spring up from nowhere. And then they will tell you at that point what you should do. Now, simultaneously with your rotation, I usually recommend that you're using some kind of question a bank to engage in critical thinking, so that you are stimulated. You know how to think through cases when you see them on the wards, and that would allow you to learn for yourself. And then it also allows you to gain knowledge, so that when you show up on rounds, you know how to shine. Now, tricks to shine during rounds is there are a few of them. You're always going to read ahead. You're always going to know about your patients. You're always going to opt to write a SOAP note. You're always going to opt to present your patient yourself. So instead of allowing your resident to present your patient, you should always opt to present your patient. Even if you stumble and even if you make mistakes, that's how you learn. Because your effort is really what your attending is seeing. It's not necessarily your medical knowledge. Now, over the course of the rotation, you're there to learn, so your medical knowledge will improve. Now, so to summarize, because I can talk about this for hours, which is why I created a whole course around it. And it's one module in my course is how to obtain strong letters of recommendations. But key points, key take-home points, you start before the rotation, you make your intentions known about the first week in, but then you are doing things, okay? You're showing up, you're asking for opportunity, you're presenting cases, you're asking for how you can present on a topic. And if you don't know something you're saying, I will look it up and I'll bring the answer back the following day. And you're keeping to your word. And that's how you build likability that attending physician in order to get a strong letter of recommendation. And there's more to it for the sake of the podcast and for the sake of time. This is the information I'm going to share with you right now.
0: Thank you. I think that was actually very succinct and still a lot of value in that little bit. So definitely if students want to learn more, they have an entire course potentially to take if that's of interest to them. Hospitals and universities
1: spend countless hours mediating clinical rotations between students and physicians. Students can search out and request their own rotations. Preceptors will be notified of the request and decide if their schedule will allow it. Learners and educators regain control over their schedules while reducing staff hours and overhead. Go to findarotation.com for more information. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform.
0: And I did want to echo a few things that were mentioned there, because this is also a key point in a lot of our season one interviews was the mention of a strong letter of recommendation, not just ask for a letter of recommendation, a strong letter, because an okay letter is probably not going to do any favors for you in the long run. So specifying that will really also prime the preceptor for the type of information that they're expecting from you for a stronger letter of recommendation. I do want to come back to a few things you mentioned there about getting two or three rotations in a certain space or certain elective. But before I do that, I'm just kind of curious, since this is definitely going to be something at the top of a lot of conversations, it already is to some degree, is with step one going past fail now, what are some of the signs that you're seeing or changes that you're recommending to students? Because now, if they were going to stand out on their step one score when they apply, it's not necessarily going to be that easy now. They're going to need something extracurricular, some other steps to take. And I'm just kind of curious as to where you're at with that, what you recommend.
1: It was a hot topic for a while there when it first came out and still is. And I remember actually doing a whole Instagram TV episode on this at Dr. Nina Loom on Instagram. And one of the things that I caution people IMGs to focus on is still focus on passing step one, okay? Because I don't know, but I think there's still going to be a way to determine people's scores, okay? Unless the USMLE just never tells us that. But usually they give you a score report and they tell you how you did on this. We don't know how deep it's going to get with the score report that's submitted to programs, okay? So still focus on passing extremely well in step one, even if there's not a numerical value associated with it. What I will say though is there's still gonna be step two CK. My presumption, which is mine only, there's no evidence to support this, is humans, we're always seeking for objective ways to judge other people, okay? We're always seeking for ways to say, this is good and this is bad, because we have to have that. That's part of human life. So there's always going to be a part of every human that looks for something else beyond their perception to judge a person. And one of the ways you can do that is with this test. So I foresee step two CK carrying a lot more weight, which rightfully so, because it is clinical knowledge, basic sciences. I mean, I can go a whole day and never really think about what I learned in basic sciences when I take care of patients on a daily basis. But there's never a day that I don't think about what I learned in clinical knowledge on a daily basis, right? Like fairly good example. Yesterday, I had a patient who needed to have a splenectomy, for example. And then I had to go back and think about all the immunizations they needed to get and all the prophylaxis they needed afterward and what kind of encapsulated bacteria they're at risk and those types of things. It never really goes down to basic sciences unless you're in research or, you know, kind of in a field where you're dealing with physics or something like that. Or biochemistry, if you're in genetics and research, and who really talks about the Krebs cycle anymore? So I can see the objective standard moving into step two CK because that's really true assessment of whether you have strong clinical knowledge. So I would really focus on studying well and passing well for step one and step two. So basically what I'm saying is my recommendations have not changed because IMG should be standing out anyways. So they should be seeking to stand out on step one and on step two right now when it's a numerical score, and they should be doing the same when it's not a numerical score for step one. Because once you start to change your standards based on what society is telling you, you're going to miss the mark. You should have these standards for yourself. It shouldn't be about the mark. It shouldn't be about the society and the ECFMG and the USMLE. You should be trying to know basic sciences because it's an essential part of your education, period. You should be trying to study for CK and pass well because clinical knowledge is an essential part of your education, period. It shouldn't be about a numerical score. But I know, I know, I know sometimes when we're in the trenches, it's hard to see beyond the current picture. We can't see the big picture so easily. So I will caution IMGs to say, yeah, if you think you're going to not have to focus on step one, you're lying to yourself. But if you're going to focus on just one test out of the two, then focus on step two CK.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of debate. Maybe step one will be like a pass and high pass. So there's still potential for different categories to be placed on this. Won't be an exact three-digit score, but you could be potentially in different categories that might signify something to your future residency applications and program directors where you stood in that pack.
1: Very true. Very true. Very true. I mean, I totally agree with you on that.
0: And then something you were mentioning about if you have the opportunity, get two, maybe even three rotations in the field that you feel that you want to go into. But a lot of us don't know necessarily where we want to go into, or maybe find out late in our fourth year and don't have the opportunity to go back and do several rotations in that specialty. So, are there any things that students in that situation can do to bump up their own applications?
1: So, if they're in an audition rotation, what can they do to bump up their own application? Is that the question?
0: If they've already missed out on being able to take several within the field that they want to go into?
1: Yeah. So there's still room for observerships. There's still room for asking to shadow a doctor and letting that become your opportunity because it's not about necessarily just the fact that it wasn't part of your clinical rotations. If it wasn't a part of your clinical rotations, it's not the end. Now, ideally, it should have been, but if it wasn't, it's not the end. What you can do, what this person can do, is they can consider doing an observership in that specialty and doing more than one. Do two, three. There are some research positions even that could line up strongly with that specialty, like being a research assistant, research facilitator. Those are paid positions too. And that's all part of networking. And networking, again, is a separate module on the IMG roadmap course where I talk about the value of US clinical experience and how to network as an IMG, because it can come down to shadowing doctors, doing an observership, working in a research-related discipline of that specialty, attending conferences, writing posters or research papers and articles. There are so many ways to go about it, but networking is such a broad topic. But in medicine, we don't ever focus on it because we always hope our scores will speak for us. But I think that there is a strong part of networking that it remains untapped in the medical world. And IMGs especially need to be investing a lot more time into how they can network starting in the communities that they live in. So emailing programs in your communities because you have a tie to that community could be one way to get your foot in the door. And then looking out for societies and organizations in your community. So if this person's interested in general surgery, well, look out for the American College of Surgeons chapter in your state and then see how you can volunteer with them. That's one way to meet several surgeons who may be affiliated with programs that can allow you to come shadow them in the OR. And by virtue of that, you're exposed to what the requirements are and you can express interest. And because you have shown up, you have networked your way into being called back for interview. So those are just you know very easy ways that I'm just can get in the door without coming through the front door.
0: I think that's a lot of good advice and and some good resources there. I do want to caution students though, because there are a lot of I would call them maybe predatory rotation agencies out there that offer these observerships and shadowing experiences, but they really, really take advantage of the student in some circumstances, in some situations, charge them a lot of money and don't give them very good experiences to begin with. So I don't know if this is an area that you're very aware of or have any advice for, but is that something that students should potentially be wary of?
1: You're right. With every... Problem, there's always a person trying to fix the problem. And then you have someone else that comes in and wants to munch off of the person with the problem. And so it's the same with medical education. There are services like that that would offer really low quality rotations to students that don't help them get matched um, and pose as if they would. So I think that it's important for the student to look at certain criteria when picking out a program. So it's not about the company. Per se it's about the program that each company is presenting to you. Because within each company, you probably have a good rotation and a bad rotation. So you want to figure out what other people, prior residents or prior students that have gone through that program have to say about it. And then two, you want to also figure out what setting it's in. Is it I actually have an ebook, which I think we should give out to everybody that's listening to this. And it's basically the IMG guide for clinical rotations. And following that ebook, what I described in it was you know, you can rotate in a multidisciplinary setting or you can rotate in a private practice setting. Multidisciplinary settings are always best because it's usually always affiliated with the teaching program. A teaching program has been vetted by the ACGME, the Accrediting Institution for Graduate Medical Education. So that means that they follow set protocols and policies in training residents so you can guarantee a high quality learning opportunity. So once you're in a multidisciplinary setting that is affiliated with some kind of vetting process by the ACGME, you can almost guarantee that it's going to be a great experience. As opposed to a program that doesn't offer that because it's a one-on-one in a private practice in the middle of nowhere. And so those are ways that you can use to gauge this. And for anyone that's interested in that particular ebook, you can just go to loom.com, that's D-R-N-I-N-A-L-U-M.com, and subscribe, and it will come directly to your inbox so that you can use that to vet through what kind of clinical experiences are better for you to pursue.
0: I definitely would like to look at that myself and might use that as a resource because I speak to IMGs frequently about these topics and about the horrible experiences that I had with several rotation agencies that I used and what they said was going to be a part of the rotation, what actually happened there. And had I looked at that organization and Googled spam or complaint afterwards, I probably would have seen all of the past complaints On those companies. And sometimes I did see them and I ignored them anyway. And then they charge very large amounts of money, especially for the multidisciplinary rotations versus private practice. So sometimes you don't need the multidisciplinary. Sometimes you just need to get an elective out of the way. So a lot of different things to consider on that. And I'd like to speak with you more in the future about that since we are actually trying to form a platform that'll help students, especially IMGs, finding. These different qualities of rotations and different ways to approach this topic in general while also not being price gouged.
1: Absolutely. I'll be here to help in any way possible. I'm all about, I'm just rooting for them. I'm one. I'm here to
0: help. So, a question for you actually, you can pick either one of these. It's up to you. Is what is the biggest change you hope to see in academic and clinical medicine in the next five to 10 years? Or what is the accomplishment that you're the most proud of
1: I think the biggest change i want to see is inclusivity especially for my fellow imgs getting them into even what has been previously considered relatively competitive specialties that's what i look forward to and then what i'm most proud of right now of course is how many imgs have been able to coach into success which is over a couple of dozen at this point and I am really proud of that because I can never treat all the number of people that these different doctors are going to collectively influence over the course of their careers. So, in a way, it's an extension of me because as a physician, I may over my lifespan treat, I don't know, a couple thousand, hundreds of thousands of patients or not, but when i help another img to get into complete residency successfully and begin to practice collectively we're going to touch millions of people and being a part of their story is so important to me because of that outcome is eventually they're going to go to towns and cities and states and communities and serve in places i would never go and i would never reach on a normal day so That's what I'm most proud of. And I'm really looking forward to continue to include more IMGs, bring them to the table, both in teaching, in service, in community areas, community settings, and continue to increase the numbers because a lot of IMGs end up going to serve and work in places that are a little bit further from the big cities. And that's a huge asset for the U.S. educational system and the U.S. medical system. And I want more IMGs doing more of that because we're touching lives, we're impacting people, we're reaching areas that one person cannot reach. And I can't do that. And if I can help another IMG and another IMG over the course of my life, I think we'll be able to influence probably millions of people collectively.
0: Definitely. I mean, I just recently wrote a paper on this and said there are currently 216,000 IMG physicians, and that's about 22.7% of the workforce. So we're making a huge impact on the healthcare system and it looks like that's just potentially going to keep increasing from year to year
1: agree with you it's only going to go up from here
0: Yep. so where can the audience find out a little bit more about you i know we've mentioned the podcast and your ebook which we will link to the show notes but are there any other resources that you would like to call on and any other materials that we can guide them to to help them with these types of issues
1: you know i'll get you all these links so we can have them in the show notes for sure Dr. Nina Loom, so drninalum dot com, is my website. Through my website, you can get a link to my Instagram, which is also at Dr. Nina Loom, which is at drninalum. You can also get a link to my online course platform, which is the IMG Roadmap. It's imgroadmap dot com. Imgroadmap dot You can type that into your browser as well. You get all the directions for all my resources, the podcasts, the courses. Each week, I have a new blog post only focused on IMG-related stuff. On my website, you can download eBooks written by myself and I actually have had contributing authors such as other IMGs that have completed residency. I had one IMG who documented her entire journey and put it in an eBook, and you can download that from my website as well. You can also get access to my books because I've authored books regarding this. Most recently, Still MD, which is Two Physicians Advice for International Medical Students or Graduates. You can get a link to that through the shop on my website as well. So really everybody listening, if you want to connect with me, head over to com or at Dr. Nina Loom on Instagram as well. And I'll be more than happy to connect with you, answer your questions. So feel free to Slide in my DMs and I'll get
0: you on the right path. That's great. All right. We have a lot of resources here. Definitely add these to the show notes as well. And Dr. Nina Loom, I want to thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your experiences and your wisdom with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again
1: next time.